Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Health screenings are an important part of maintaining good health, especially as you get older. Many deaths could be prevented if people got simple, regular health screenings as recommended by their doctors. In the United States, we are fortunate to have a number of health screenings that can detect problems early. Why is that important? Because early treatment for most diseases is more likely to be successful. The later we catch a disease, the harder it can be to treat or cure. For example, colon cancer is one of the most preventable types of cancer, but many times few symptoms occur early when it's most treatable. A routine exam can detect a colon polyp before it becomes cancerous and it can be easily removed. But in the US, some 20% of people are not up to date on the recommended screening for colon cancer. Breast cancer is similar with a lack of detectable symptoms early, and the rates for breast cancer screening are similar with as many as 25% of women reporting they are not up to date with their recommended screening for breast cancer. Rates vary by patient group and are further hampered by racial divides and inequity that play an economic and ethnic contribution to individual opportunities and uptake. Healthcare screenings remain a center state of the delivery of good quality healthcare And despite some great progress in the prevention, detection, and treatment of breast cancer, we still have plenty of opportunities to improve outcomes and break down the barriers to increase access and improve uptake in all groups. When you get the health screenings recommended for you, you're taking a simple but very important step toward a better quality of life and quite possibly a longer life. So how do we improve the availability and uptake for breast cancer screening? Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Amy Patel, a breast radiologist, assistant professor of radiology at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine, and chair of the American College of Radiology Advocacy Networks, and the president-elect of the American Association of Women in Radiology. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, um, one of the primary uh, methodologies for screening. And screening has, I I would say, brought about something of a revolution, a positive revolution uh, in the treatment and care and actually prognosis of uh, breast cancer is mammography. But I've got to be honest, I hear a lot of complaints about it, uh, both as an experience and, you know, the, the whole sequence. Why is it we do mammography? Is it still the best choice? 
Yes, so at this time, the only screening tool with a proven mortality benefit is mammography. And we know since the advent of breast screening programs in the United States, which launched in the early 80s, we've been able to reduce breast cancer death rates to almost 40%. Uh, so it is the mainstay, and we've we've done a great job at advancing uh, mammography in general with the uh, advent of digital breast homosynthesis, which is now, uh, you know, in layman's terms, 3D mammography, which is now uh, deemed no longer investigational uh, and truly is the mainstay of many of our practices uh, because of the fact that we're able to look at the breast tissue in a three-dimensional way, sort of like turning pages of a book. We're able to scroll through the breast tissue, uh, similar to a CAT scan, and if there is a cancer that is hiding, particularly in a sea of dense breast tissue, which appears white on the mammogram, we're more likely to detect it. So we're seeing an increase, not just just in our cancer detection rate, but our invasive cancer detection rate, which is very important when we look at prognosis. Uh, so for us, mammography truly is the mainstay, but of course there are supplemental uh, screening measures that are uh, coming out uh, more and more in our field uh, that you know provide different avenues uh, for patients in this era of what we call personalized breast care. So I, I think there's not not a month goes by that we don't hear some story, uh, particularly of high profile individuals who've been through screening are actually quite grateful for screening. I think there's uh, even, even a recent one I just saw in the last week or so um, with one of the um, uh, newscasters. Um, Given that 40%, I mean, that's good, but is it good enough? And how do we get better and what should... Uh, we th be thinking about from a screening strategy? Sure. Uh, you know, we've made great advancements and we should be very proud, but the work is far from over. And for those of us who are in the trenches uh, facing this every day, uh, we still have immense challenges. In certain parts of the country, anywhere from 20 to 40% of patients are still not receiving the screening that they need. And this is not just applicable to mammography. We're, we're talking about CT lung cancer screening, which is likely a higher percentage, uh, colonoscopy screening. So screening in general, we need to do a better job at, at reaching these patients. Uh, but another part of it is just access. Unfortunately, we do not have uh, you know, federal legislation that's sweeping to cover all types of breast imaging modalities that a patient may need. And uh, largely, a lot of this legislation is, uh, occurs at the state level. Now, we've made some great advancements, particularly through the PALS Act at the federal level and extending the moratorium for annual uh, mammography screening beginning at age 40. Uh, but that is just one part of many uh, specifically patients who don't have insurance, uh, spe specifically the underinsured. Uh, and so many, many states are really trying hard uh, for access. In the state of Missouri, I was very uh, honored to be a part of passing legislation in 2018 and 2020, both for average risk and above average risk patients. But that's just for women who have insurance through the state of Missouri. So let's say you're a patient who has insurance, who lives in Missouri, but it's based out of Tennessee, you're not going to have the same coverage benefits as a patient in Missouri. 
or if you're a patient who doesn't have insurance, period, that's another bag of worms, a whole can of worms. And so we definitely have a lot of work to do when it comes to reaching patients, uh, and specifically when it comes to women of color. There are many states throughout the country, unfortunately, Missouri is one of them, with one of the highest breast cancer death rates in Black and Hispanic women. And one of the counties which plagues uh, this is the county in which I was raised in rural Northwest Missouri called Livingston County. So those of us who are in a position to try to push for change, uh, I'm an, a fervent believer that we should. Uh, we're, we should be proud of what we've accomplished, but the work is far from over. So I, I, I think some great points there in terms of we've made progress, but clearly not enough. I think this inequity uh, thread continues to permeate almost all of the discussions I have in healthcare and on this show. Um, and as you think about that inequity and addressing that inequity, you know, you've got one state, albeit, you know, that's the insurance element, but one state, uh, some others down. What is the pathway to fixing that inequity? I mean, we really want to see this not, and I assume that the access is because or the lack of, you know, utilization is because of lack of access. Is that the case? And then how do we reconcile and, and deliver this access? Is it about mobile clinics? Is it about geography? What, what are the elements that you're working on to sort of reconcile this? Sure. Access is a large part of it, of course, but really education should be discussed as well. Uh, so truly, it will take a multifactorial approach if we're ever going to close the gap to breast care inequities in this country. Uh, we know that health literacy rates uh, vary significantly uh, throughout the country when you look specifically at urban versus rural or even geographically where I practice now in the Kansas City, Missouri area serving rural patients all the way up to southern Iowa comparatively to where I was practicing in Boston, Massachusetts uh, previously in my first year of practice. So there's a lot of disparities there, particularly from a health literacy standpoint. And so education is important. And, and honestly, I feel like a boots on the ground approach is important. So I do a lot of work where I'm going out into rural communities, uh, talking to uh, talking to uh, members of the community at luncheons, at breast cancer awareness events, uh, in churches. I mean, anywhere we can go to educate these patients and invariably from these sort of activities. I do have patients that will come up to me or people come up to me saying, I don't know, you know, I need a mammogram, I can't afford it. And we're able to plug those patients in. So a lot of it is just the awareness, it is the educational aspect, and then identifying these patients to get, get them the access they need. Um, but in addition, there's other layers to this. So for example, in the state of Missouri, we have a program called the Show Me Healthy Woman program. And this is a program that if you are a woman who's at the 200% poverty level, you can qualify for that program and to receive free cervical and screening mammography examinations. Uh, and then if you end up having a breast cancer diagnosis, you will be covered under BCCT Medicaid for your oncologic treatments. Uh, we're lucky to have this program 
program, but even the program itself, there's still areas where it's difficult to become a practice or institution to even qualify to be a Show Me Healthy Women provider. So in the state of Missouri, we're working on improving that for practices and institutions so they can have access for any patients that come in the door and they don't have to turn them away. But not all states have a program like that. So that's another avenue where states really need to look at and see if there is something of a similar variety that they can offer as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, having a federal setup would really be wonderful for our patients so that every state is not left behind when it comes to these patients, regardless of geographic distribution. So I, I think great progress, you, you know, and I, I, I agree with you, this boots on the ground acceptance, you know, meet people where they are is, is one of the sort of essential elements to really bringing people along. One of the privileges I had was interviewing uh, a group that essentially used the, uh, the barbershop as a focal point for men in this instance, although, you know, there's a part of me that's wondering, is, is there an equivalency that maybe works for women? I, I, I don't know as much about that side of it, obviously, but, you know, I think that's part of the sort of a, approach. Are there other elements to this? I mean, let's be frank. I, there's not a woman I've spoken to about this. And obviously, you know, I come at this with, with a, a little bit of humbleness. I'm, I'm a man. I've not experienced it, but I understand what the experience is. It's not a very pleasant experience. Is that something that we can address and improve on? I mean, where, where do you think that's going? Well, the technology itself has improved patient comfort. You know, no woman likes to have a mammogram. And, you know, there, we're, we have to un unfortunately uh, apply adequate compression to the breast to splay the breast tissues mm. so that if there is a cancer hiding, we're able to detect it. I mean, that's just unfortunately uh, how it is with a mammogram. Uh, however, you know, with the advent of digital breast homosynthesis, uh, we're able to apply less compression uh, which comparatively speaking to the uh, previous 2D or full field digital mammography. So there's less compression involved. And also uh, just the, the compression paddles that are being used when a woman is having a mammogram. Uh, there's certain technologies out there where it can conform to the breast contour, which, in, which can also mitigate discomfort. Uh, you know, I myself a few months ago, I had a mammogram and it was obviously a very unpleasant experience uh, when I was having it, but it was very, very short-lived it was just a few seconds per uh, image and I was done and so uh, and that was it I didn't have any pain afterwards or anything like that uh, other things that we can recommend is specifically taking um, some sort of uh, pain reliever prior to your mammogram if it's uh, okay with your your primary provider and your medication history so I would say overall the discomfort that a patient feels when having the mammogram um, is very very short-lived and the pros definitely definitely uh, outweigh the cons in terms of getting your mammogram uh, because the alternative could be, of course, lethal uh, if you don't have your mammogram. And unfortunately, a cancer uh, does uh, appear that is more advanced than when we could have detected it when it was less than a centimeter in size, where your survival probability approaches almost 100%. Yeah, so I, I'll talk about it in the context that I can understand. And I think you're exactly right. It's, you know, short lived. It's certainly shorter lived than the colonoscopy preparation that people undergo. And that's a, an essential part of screening and certainly something I, I've been through uh, more than once. 
Um, and, you know, I, I accept that as part of the uh, risk reward equation. Um, one of the things that struck me about colonoscopy, and I, I think we saw an uptick, I, I, I want to say it was Katie Couric who went through a very public sort of um, exposure and experience to say this is the right thing. Do you think there's some potential perhaps to do some of that, to bring people along to show them, you know, to your point, it's it's short lived. And, you know, the, the, the outcome of this is incredibly important and very positive. Yes, uh, particularly, you know, public figures, those who are a very respected, well known, if they have gone through this, or even if they are, uh, you know, staunch supporters of getting their mammogram every year, uh, we need th these voices heard. Uh, you know, Katie Couric is a very respected journalist, and we are very grateful that she has shared her journey. It's not easy. She was very brave to do so. It's a very sensitive, intimate mm -hmm. time of one's life. But if more people can ha express and sh and exhibit that bravery uh, and tell their story. Uh, you know, you could save so many lives. You have no idea that the lives you'll touch. So for her to come out and impress upon uh, the world that annual screening mammography is incredibly important. Uh, and she, you know, she mentions that, you know, she was late by six months and she shudders to think if she would have delayed her imaging even longer. So the more these public well-respected figures can get out there and talk about their story. Uh, I, I do think it makes an impact in the community and it spurs others to get the uh, their mammographic imaging if they're if they're late on it or have never even received a baseline examination and they're of age. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a big fan of that, you know, meet people where they are and also, you know, talk to them from the uh, the respected voices and everybody has different sort of channels that they approach. Um, it would be, um, you know, a missed opportunity if we we didn't get you to state as clearly as you could, um, you know, w what are the specifics that women should think about from a mammography screening standpoint? When should they start? What is the frequency? What are the sort of uh, the the positive um, outcomes that can be expected from that process. And, you know, statistically, it would be also helpful, I think, for people to understand what their chances are. Sure. Well, we now recommend, first of all, that any woman of any color is risk assessed by age 30. So now we're really looking at risk uh, stratification with women in this era of personalized breast care. So if you are a woman who is 20% or greater a lifetime risk, you're considered above average risk or high risk. And that is different from an average risk patient. If you're an average risk patient, we recommend annual screening mammography beginning at age 40. Uh, studies have shown uh, the most lives are saved uh, when you start screening at 40, the most life years and lives saved. Uh, so in addition to that, if you're average risk, and particularly if you have what's called dense breast tissue, where we see more of that white on the mammogram, uh, you know, as the density increases in a woman, the sensitivity of mammography decreases. Now, digital breast tomosynthesis has been wonderful, as I previously mentioned, uh, particularly for women with dense breasts, but sometimes that is not enough. And so there are women that do elect to have supplemental screening modalities, uh, such as ultrasound or 
something that we offer at our breast center called abbreviated breast MRI, which is a an abbreviated MRI study uh, that can look through those dense breast tissues. Uh, many studies are showing commensurate cancer detection rates to full breast MRIs. It's also a cheap way uh, for patients to have access to supplemental screening, as most uh, institutions that offer abbreviated MRI right now just do it via cash pay because there is no uh, specific code for that for billing. So, uh, so that's on the average risk side of it. But uh, if you're above average risk, we actually recommend breast MRI annually from the ages of 25 to 29. And then once the patient turns 30, we recommend they start a mammographic screening alternating every six months with that supplemental screening, as I mentioned. So uh, we are doing this, uh, you know, as we, uh, the studies are evolving, this research is evolving, we need to get more aggressive about diagnosing breast cancers in younger women. Uh, we are uh, just, it's been incredible to see the changes, I think, in breast imaging in just a short period of time, the last five to 10 years. So that's what, you know, a lot of us recommend in practice. Uh, and it's, again, very important that patients go somewhere where they can be properly risk assessed to know if they are high risk or average risk. So then they know what imaging surveillance they may need. I, I think excellent advice. And, you know, that personalization is definitely something we're seeing generally in medicine. We're moving more to you're not just a diabetic. You are Nick the diabetic. And we, we customize things. And I think that risk stratification extraordinarily important. Um, as, as we uh, think about that whole process there's obviously some folks that fall out and you know there's identification just share a little bit of what that means in terms of the positive outcome I, you know it's it's not something that anybody wants to hear but the reality is that it's important to hear and it's important to hear early well i mean risk stratification is incredibly important uh, because if we can identify those who are above average risk and we can then provide the heightened imaging surveillance they need, we're more likely to detect cancers early, which can lead to an increased survival probability. Uh, same with genetic testing. If there's a patient with a strong family history who needs to be genetically tested and they do uh, end up having a positive breast cancer mutation, such as BRCA or CHECK2 or the myriad of uh, mutations out there, then they can consider perhaps I want to have a bilateral prophylactic mastectomy and reconstruction and, and reduce and prevent me from getting breast cancer. Uh, so it's, 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 it can be a very scary thing to face this and to be risk assessed and to, to know you're above average risk or to know you have a mutation. But uh, as I like to preach, I really try to implore upon patients to take charge of their breast health, to not be afraid because it can be very empowering as there are certain factors that if we know what our risk is, then we can take the necessary precautions ahead of time. And that in and of itself can be incredibly empowering for patients. So I, I think if I was to try and summarize this, it's that personalization of risk stratification. You know, there's a part of me that, you know, historically, you know, the answer from a screening standpoint, yes, get your mammogram 40 plus once a year. But, you know, as you eloquently described, that's not the case. It, it might be for you, but it might be different for somebody else. It's important to have this discussion with your primary care provider and obviously specialists as necessary. 
highly variable based on all of the inputs, the family history and so forth. But the good news is we have many variations on a theme that can bring about a very positive outcome that can already improve on something that is to this point, I think delivered some great value and some positive impact uh, for breast cancer. So, um, Amy, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. Traditionally, we would think of screening as a one-size-fits-all, but as you've heard from Amy, this broad-brush approach has been replaced by a far more targeted and personalized risk stratification. Screening programs need to be customized, not just based on the clinical assessment and your personal risk measures, but also on your geography, your level of access, and delivered to the population where they are. Your better pill to swallow? is It's not enough to offer breast screening. We must go the steps further to customize the message and the access to engage with patients through the media and communities they live in. The science and benefits are clear for mammography and the extended personalized screening, but that message needs to reach all members of our communities, together with widespread access to bring everyone to better health and better outcomes. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.